On this episode of Adventure Rider Radio, well, you're in for a shock. I'm Jim Martin, and I already said this. This is Adventure Rider Radio. We got a great episode lined up for you today. We're going to be talking with first Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, then Ted Porter from The Beamer Shop. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and get ready to learn something today. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Nick Sanders from Wales and Great Britain. My name is Austin Vince, and I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. If you listen to this, you rule me. Hi, I'm Ed March from c90adventures.co.uk and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, you are in for a shock. I don't even know what you ride, but you are definitely in for a shock. Oh, it's all about suspension today. We're going to learn about stock suspensions and aftermarket suspensions. We're going to talk about what wears out, what breaks, and why you need to replace your suspension, how an aftermarket suspension is going to help you, and what you should be looking for when you shop for an aftermarket suspension. What does a reservoir do? What does it charge with? And how to set up your preload on your spring. And all this information is going to come from some of the top names in the business. So you're going to get the real facts. To kick things off, we're going to start with a familiar voice to us here on Adventure Rider Radio, Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. Grant, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Good to be back. And you've just returned from India from a a fairly large trip. Yeah, that was a big deal. Uh, India Bike Week is a a weekend event in India in, in the area of Goa, which is a big popular tourist destination, and a lot of people go there when they're on their India tour. Um, fantastic event, 10,000 people, lots going on, um, very intense. There's an awful lot happening all at once, and uh, we had a good chance to meet up with a lot of travelers. There was a lot of people came that just specifically for that because they had a what they called the big trip tent where we were doing talks along with a number of other travelers. So it was a lot of fun to connect with people in India. And we're probably going to see a lot more people from India that are going out into the world and making long-distance travel part of their life. Yeah, it's becoming much bigger. Um, India is among our top half dozen countries for visits to our website. Which oh, it's, wow. It's huge. It's, there's a lot of interest. A lot of Indians, while they may not be able to leave their country, they've got a huge country with some amazing places to go. I mean, it's very popular for Indians to do a big trip up into the Himalayas. They can go to the highest motorable pass in the world at 18,000 feet and lots of mountain roads and beautiful countryside. And a lot of places that aren't that intense, crowded situation that you sort of expect for India. There's lots of remote areas that are fantastic to tour in. Well, today we're talking about suspension. And why don't we start off by just talking about the very basics? Well, I think the important thing is to start off with the concept of what is suspension's purpose? And the whole purpose of suspension, people think it's to make it more comfortable. No, the real purpose is to keep the tires in contact with the road. If your tires aren't touching the road... They're not sticking, and you're in all kinds of trouble. Um, So it's important to make sure that the suspension, it's doing its job to keep the tires on the road firmly planted so you have good traction, good braking, go around corners and all that without any issues. 
So when we're going over bumps, then obviously the, the tire drops into the hole and it comes back out of it and ideally not moving the motorcycle very much. And that's what you're saying by keeping the contact with the road all the time. Yeah, you want the bike to move as little up and down as possible and bounce around as little as possible, but the tires have to stay in contact. So that means that your suspension, the longer travel suspension you have, the more likelihood of keeping the tires on the road. So where adventure bikes on a really nasty, bumpy road can actually make mincemeat of a real sports bike because a sports bike suspension is so short and so stiff that they're bouncing all over the road and they're half the time they're in the air, whereas the touring bike, the adventure touring bike with long travel, softer suspension is really sticking to the road and absorbing the bumps and keeps the bike much more manageable. So how do they achieve this using springs and hydraulics? Okay, basics are the spring is what keeps you off the ground, keeps the thing from sagging down. It's If you run without the hydraulic compression damping and, and uh, rebound damping, the spring alone will give you a pogo stick feel. The bike will bounce up and down all over the place, and it can be quite exciting to ride a bike with poor damping or no damping. It's just all over the place. So the damping keeps things under control. Why is the stock setup not adequate for adventure riding? I think that goes back to why is the stock suspension adequate for normal riding? It's designed for average person, average load, average use. As soon as you talk adventure riding, you're talking bigger load, more stuff, and generally tougher conditions, nastier roads, bumpier roads, or no road where you're going to have to have a lot better suspension damping and control. What sort of stress is, is the suspension put through when we're driving it off-road or when we're going over bumps and rocks? Well, it's moving up and down a lot faster, a lot more. The damping has to work a lot harder. The spring works a lot harder. And one thing that happens is the shock gets a lot hotter. If you have a poorly controlled shock, poor damping, inadequate cooling, the shock can overheat, the oil gets air in it and then it doesn't work anymore so we've got some moving parts in there despite the fact that it looks like just a coil spring on the outside on the inside we've got some moving parts that are going back and forth in some hydraulic fluid that's going to affect the performance of it and the longevity absolutely if the shock overheats then you can actually destroy the oil and then the oil doesn't work anymore properly and you've got a poorly controlled shock and you've got all kinds of trouble uh, if the oil is is thoroughly cooked, it also doesn't lubricate very well, which means you're going to run into a risk of burning out the seals. It's going to start leaking oil, and the shock can fail. How long should a shock last? Average general industry thinking is 30,000 miles, and it's done. That's not very much. No, it's not. And I've seen bikes with 150,000 miles on the original shock. That shock isn't doing anything anymore except holding the bike off the ground. It's an absolute joke. 30,000 miles on a stock shock is actually doing pretty well if you get 30,000 miles out of stock shock for damping. Um, aftermarket manufacturers like Olin's and Touratech and all the rest of them, they'll generally recommend something on the order of a rebuild every 30,000 miles. What's wearing out in the shock? The seals and the oil itself is just getting tired. And there's bushings in there that are going to wear as well, and then we're going to have leaking things and... Yeah, the bushings generally do pretty well. They'll often last considerably longer. Um, I had a shock rebuilt after our around-the-world trip, or three-quarters of the way around. Did um, Europe, Africa, and South America, and had it rebuilt in the U.S. when I went there. Um, 
and it had about 100,000 kilometers on it at that point. And all we did was replace the seals and the oil. It was fine. The, the shaft, the bushings, and the rest of it were fine. It's just seals and oil is what fails. So the big question here, I think, at this point is, how do I know when my shock is gone? 30,000 miles. <laughs> You're just going to look at the start. odometer. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Uh, you can also just bounce the bike up and down at the back end, particularly um, push down hard. And it's, it's a good idea to do it with another bike that's new or do your own bike when it's new and kind of do it a, a regular bounce check. It shouldn't just bounce back instantly. It should come back just a little bit slower than just an instant bounce. And if you bounce it up and down several times hard, like just get right on top of it and push, 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 um, you should feel the damping working. If you don't feel any damping, if you don't feel that there's some restriction to the speed at which it comes back up, then it's just done. It's not doing anything. Um, to give you an idea, when I bought my R80GS way back in 1986, I took the brand spanking new shock and put it on the garage wall and ordered a works performance shock replacement because I knew that the stock shock was not going to last. The spring was not adequate for the load I was going to carry, and there was just no way it was going to do the job. Um, so if anybody wants a brand spanking new R80 GS 1986 shock, I still have it sitting on the garage wall. It's brand new. Um, so that gives you an idea of my thinking on how good the standard shock is for our type of riding. Two up with a load of luggage, stock shock is not adequate, period. I don't care what anybody says. It's just not up to the job. It's not designed for that. It was never intended to do that job. It's almost like you're buying something that's really designed for average riding around, maybe daily trips, weekend trips, and then you're loading it up like a pickup truck. So right out of the box, we're looking at a problem. Yeah. And the, shock, the standard shock has to work well for a solo rider with no load. It's also designed when you put in the factory-recommended saddlebag weight, which is 10 kilos per side, plus 5 kilos on the top box, and a lightweight passenger, it's designed to do that just, but no more. As soon as you add in your normal adventure traveling load and then go to Africa, forget it. The shock, stock shock won't make it. I know one guy who went around the world on R100GS, I think it was. It doesn't really matter. I think he went through about four or five shocks. And in the end, he eventually broke the frame even. All stock shocks, not adequate. So we're at 30,000 miles. We realize that it's time to replace our shock or do something with it. And I guess our option here is do we rebuild the one we have or do we buy a new one? It's almost impossible to rebuild the factory shocks. They're not designed to be rebuilt. That costs money to make them rebuildable. So they're generally a throwaway item and you buy a good aftermarket shock that is rebuildable. You can buy inexpensive aftermarket shocks that are not rebuildable, but again, they're good for about 30,000 miles. That's it. What's the difference between a good shock or a just an average shock? One of the big ones is rebuildability, and the other one is look at the price tag, and you'll find out pretty quickly what the difference is between the, the really good ones and the inexpensive, cheap replacements. There's a big difference. The, the better shocks will have better damping control. They'll have more adjustments. Uh, they're more rebuildable. Uh, they'll have a remote reservoir, which adds considerable expense, but also means that the oil is going to be running much cooler and, the, and it increases the cooling generally for the entire shock. You may even see fins on the shock body. Uh, the shaft diameter will be bigger. Um, 
better better plating, better finishing, all kinds of things. Now, when we're going to decide we want to replace the shock and we're going to get one, is this an off-the-shelf thing or are we going to get this custom-made? Oh, it's always custom-ordered. Um, never buy one just off-the-shelf because it's not to set up for you. Um, any good, reputable shock manufacturer will ask you to tell them what your weight is, weight of your passenger, weight of your luggage, average riding conditions, and average and riding ability. If you're an expert versus a novice, there's a difference in the amount of pressure you're going to put on the shock. Now, when it comes to spring rates, we're looking at a, a wide uh, gap here between riding by yourself, uh, just your, your, your gear on and no uh, accessories on and no clothing or, or stuff packed on the back, as opposed to being fully packed for a trip and riding two up. Can any shock, can any one suspension system handle that gap? It's tough. Um, many years ago, back in the 90s, um, after we finished our trip, I was talking to a suspension guru, and he said flat out in response to that exact question, no. And at the time, he was completely correct. Uh, the shock I had was set up for two up, fully loaded, and when I rode it solo, it was it might as well have had no suspension on the back end. It was so hard. It was absolutely rock solid. Um, and, and there was no sophisticated method of adjusting it. I mean, I went through all kinds of thoughts and discussed a number of different things, and we tried to come up with some ideas, but no, couldn't be done. Today, however, we've got electronic systems, like the BMW ESA system, which works pretty well for doing that job. You can take it from very plush, soft, to a solo riding on the freeway, to two up on the freeway, to fully loaded with luggage on a bad road. Just push a button and it does it. Sets it all up and it increases damping, increases spring rates, does all kinds of things. And most bikes nowadays will have an adjustment for the rear shock, but not all of them will have an adjustment for the front forks. Preload on the front forks is very rare. Uh, it's technically difficult to do. It, it's possible, but generally all you get on the front forks is a damping rebound and compression damping adjusters. So when we're talking about our suspension system, we're not just talking about the, the rear suspension. The front suspension has to be taken into consideration too. So if the rear is not up to the task, then what do we do with the front? It needs to be set up as well. And that's where a lot of people go wrong. They put a, a nice shock on the back, but they've also got a giant tank bag and a huge gas tank full of fuel. And guess what? The front springs are now overloaded. So when you hit the brakes, you get a lot of dive. And that makes it very hard to control in a panic stop. And when we, just back to what you were saying about setting up for, uh, or, or at least when we were talking about the difference between riding by yourself or as loaded with all your gear, if you're ordering a shock and you're planning on doing all of those things, you really have to err on the heavy side of things, do you not? You really want to try and get it bang on. Uh, if it's too stiff, then the suspension's not going to work well and your tires are not going to stay in contact with the road. We're right back to the original. You've got to get it right. And a good shock manufacturer, given correct input from you, and don't be uh, optimistic about your weight or your passenger's weight and things like that. Get it right and do the job right. And once you get the shock, you put it on the bike and go through the SAG setup and things like that, and either it's right or it's not. If the sag isn't right for you and your load, then you might want to talk to the manufacturer and say, you know, I, my sag's not adequate or it's too, too little. Um, maybe a different spring. And they should be happy to swap springs for you. So you mentioned on the front shocks that very few of them will have adjustable preload. 
In what ways should our suspension systems be adjustable? Oh, ideally, you want spring preload adjustment and rebound and uh, compression damping on both ends. So ideally, preload, rebound, and compression. Let's just run through those one at a time. What is preload? Preload is the amount of compression that the spring has as standard, as, as you set it up. Um, the more preload you have on the spring, in other words, the more you've compressed the spring, the higher the bike rides. So if you have a lot of preload, the bike will ride very high. If you have very little preload, it'll ride lower. And what is rebound? Rebound damping is, is a hydraulic damping. When the bike is fully compressed, like you hit a big pothole and you go, the bike goes down hard, then the rebound damping keeps it from snapping back too quickly. And compression dampening? Is exactly the reverse. The spring is what keeps the bike from compressing too much, but damping also keeps it from compressing too fast. So we've got a spring there that, that's somewhat squished to begin with. It's, it's got some tension on it. It's holding the bike up, as you said. Um, as the, the motorcycle goes over a bump, um, the suspension compresses, and that compression is dampened by a compression setting. And as it comes back out again, the rebound is dampened by your, your rebound dampening setting. Do all shocks have these settings on them? Adjustments? No. They all have it to some extent. The cheaper suspension will have virtually no compression damping. They'll only have rebound damping. In fact, they may have no compression damping at all. They'll only have rebound. Uh, as you get more sophisticated suspension, better quality suspension, then they'll have all the aspects. And see, I'm going into this because what I want to talk about was the difference between that, that average shock that comes on the bike and the aftermarket shocks. These are the differences that you're going to find between them, correct? Absolutely, yes. So as we get into a more advanced shock, we can set up our, our shocks better for us, for our particular riding style and motorcycle, of which I, we talked before about this, about when we were talking about bike setup, how the bikes come out of the factory sort of set up for a, an average size person, of which probably nobody is of that size. <laughs> and you have to now customize it to fit you and your use. Exactly. The, getting the suspension right for how you ride, your weight, even your height can make a difference depending on your riding position. A sport bike, if you're really tall, you've got more weight on the front end than if you're really short where you'll have more weight on the back end. All of this has an effect and how you ride, your riding style. Uh, some people go into a corner really fast and hard then cram on the brakes and jam it in and then squirt it around and other people have a f more flowing style which means that they're need for compression damping is going to be different from the other rider. Um, as you exit, different things will affect how you want to set up your rear suspension. If you want to be like, think about the MotoGP guys coming out of a corner and leaving big black darkies behind them, you can adjust your rebound damping to do more or less of that. So you mentioned, Grant, a minute ago about the electronic adjustable shocks. Can you explain how that system works? Basically, it's, you're talking stepper motors which make adjustments to either increase or decrease the damping for compression or rebound, or increase the spring preload. So it's basically the same thing that we would do manually by stopping our bike and getting in there and turning our settings. Yeah, there's, there's nothing super sophisticated in there that uh, is, is what you'd call magic in this case. It's fairly simple stuff that uh, means that you can have adjustment on the fly. Uh, I was in Scotland a year ago, 
two years ago, um, on a 1200GS by Touratech, which had the Touratech suspension. And we'd been spending a lot of time on the freeway, and it was all fine, nice and cushy, pleasant ride. And then we hit some twisty, nasty, gnarly Scottish back roads, which are full of whoops and dumps, bumps, and it was really fun road, but lots of bumps, and it started dragging the undercarriage on both sides. So push a button, zip, up she goes, increase the damping a little bit, increase the fore and aft damping so that under braking it was more stolid and the bike was transformed and I could feel it instantly as I was riding. Oh, that's a little bit too much. Back that off just a little bit. Magic. It's fantastic. It's sort of a luxury on one hand. A lot of people refer to it as, you know, well, it's a, it's a little doodad. It's an extra luxury. And that's true. On one hand, it is. So you don't have to stop and make an adjustment. But on the other hand, it almost gives you an incredible tool there because as you ride along, you become your own tester and you're testing all the different settings as you go. Yeah, you can fine tune it to do exactly what you want. Um, depend, I think it, to a certain extent, it depends on your level of ability. For a complete beginner, most may not even notice what's going on. They may not even notice the changes because they're not pushing the bike to any extent to where it actually is starting to get out of shape or start dragging things. Um, but a, a more skilled, more experienced rider, and I'm not talking super experts. I'm talking just somebody who's been riding for a while, maybe 50,000 miles or something, and has some experience on a couple of different bikes. Um, they're going to notice a significant difference, a change. And it's it's important from a couple of points of view. I think it's important to understand that this isn't just a comfort point of view or I can ride faster point of view. This is I'm safer because the tires are sticking to the road. I've got better traction. I've got better control. The bike's not doing something silly when I hit a bump. Uh, it's not getting out of shape because I've hit a nasty bump just a bit wrong. Uh, it's not diving excessively into the corners. Uh, I'm coming out of a corner, and it's not pushing me towards the outside because the suspension's all wrong. I got it set up right, and it's safer, more fun, and easier to ride. Recently, I saw on the internet somebody had trouble with their bike, and they're, they're down in South America, and the shock actually broke right off. And I've seen this before. Can you talk about why shocks break? Shocks break entirely too often when adventure traveling. Uh, generally, it's the stock shock, but not always. There's definitely some aftermarket shocks that do break as well. Um, mostly they're overloaded and not maintained. Now, you may say, well, yeah, but you can't rebuild the stock, the, an aftermarket shock. No, but with modern long travel suspension, you've got to pivot at the top and at the bottom. And often those are bushings that need to be lubricated or greased. And if you've got a bike with linkage at the back, like quite a lot of the smaller dirt bikes, for instance, but also a lot of bigger bikes, uh, if you've got linkage, that linkage needs to be dismantled and cleaned and relubricated and reassembled. And that should be about every 20 to 30,000 miles, not every five years or 10 years. Too often people forget that. And one of the reasons for shocks breaking, particularly when the, the eye bolt snaps off, is because the pivot is seized and it's trying to bend back and forth. So, of course, if you're bending it, it's going to break. Um, the other thing that happens is the shock is just plain worn out. It starts to leak. You lose a lot of the oil. The shock overheats. It starts to seize, and you blow the shock. And how could you prevent that from happening? Pay attention. Look at it once in a while. Um, make sure that you've lubricated and maintained the linkage correctly. And at the first sign of any oil leak at all, 
start saying, right, I need a new shock now, not in three months. I need it now. Starting to leak, it's done. It's finished. And sticking to your maintenance schedule, you mentioned about having to, to lube the bearings. You're going to have to pull this thing apart probably when you're doing your swing arm bushings and uh, get in there and check the bearings and lube them. Yep, absolutely. You, you, you just have to do it. Um, a lot of people tend to think, well, I can set the bike up perfectly from a around-the-world trip and off they go and not do any maintenance unless it's, you know, like they'll change the oil on the engine, but they don't think about their suspension. They completely forget about it. A classic is fork oil. The number of people that never change the fork, leg, or fork oil is absolutely amazing. I've seen fork oil come out in just a little thin dribble of what looks like black water. It's absolutely useless and it has never been changed. And we're talking 10, 15-year-old motorcycles. Never change the fork oil. You have to change it annually or every 10,000 miles roughly. And that's something you're going to do yourself or you're going to take in? On most bikes, you can do it yourself if you've got any mechanical skill at all. Some bikes are a little tricky. You actually have to take the fork legs off and undo the top nut and then pour the oil out the top. There is no drain screw on the bottom, which is really annoying. But a lot of bikes just have a little screw on the bottom. You pull the screw, pump the forks up and down, squirt all the oil out, put the screw back in, pull the top nuts off, and pour in the exactly carefully measured amount of the correct oil, and you're done. That's it. It's not complicated. Yeah, there's lots of videos on YouTube on oh, how yeah. to do that, I'm sure, on your particular shock, whatever bike you have. Yep, yeah, there's lots of instruction out there. But just re be aware that fork oil matters. You do have to change it. It makes a huge difference in the way the bike feels. You go from oil that hasn't been changed in years to fresh oil. It's absolutely amazing. All of a sudden, the bike handles better. And what happens to the old oil? Why does it get bad? Like any oil, it, the molecules are actually broken down and sheared, and they're no longer as as um, I guess thick is probably the easy word. Uh, it turns into effectively water instead of being a thick oil, which is what does your damping. If you've got really thin stuff, if you want to increase the speed of your forks moving up and down, you put in thin oil. If you want to slow it down and increase the damping, you can put in a thicker oil. This is something that uh, we, we play with a lot on front ends in order to fine tune the front end. And that's the thing with oil, too, is you can, you can look at it and think that everything is fine and then not realize that what we're really talking about here is at the microscopic level. Oh, yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's a very fine thing. The oil molecules are quite large, and in a fork leg, they're sheared a lot. Um, they're forced through little tiny holes, past little balls, uh, past tight shims, and they get sheared and it fails. 10,000 miles is not very far for fork oil or for, for oil and in your mind, you think 10,000 miles on fork oil, it can't be. Yep, it's 10,000 miles, change it. And once the fork oil breaks down, what is it losing? It's losing damping in a huge way and it's also losing its lubrication qualities. So you're wearing out your fork leg, your fork bushings and wearing out the seals faster. So when it comes to setting up our bike now, especially SAG, SAG is something that every bike is going to be able to, to adjust. How do we do that? What's our steps? The basic on setting up SAG is you, I like to call it static loaded SAG. It's kind of the, the simple definition. There's other words that are used, race SAG, for instance. What the heck's race SAG? Static loaded SAG is the amount that the bike sinks when you and your passenger and all your luggage is loaded on the bike in relation to the unloaded, raised up position. 
if you go onto the internet, you'll see a lot of discussions about uh, your correct sag is an inch, 30 millimeters or something like that. That's for sport bikes. And that's where a lot of people setting up adventure bikes go wrong. Sport bikes have maybe four inches of travel. So 25, 30 millimeters, a little over an inch of sag is correct. But for adventure bikes, you're looking more in the 30 to 35% sag. My 1200GSA has nine inches of rear suspension travel, and the correct sag setting is two and a half inches, or 60, I think 65 millimeters, if I remember rightly, of sag. And that's, that's a big difference from a sports bike's 30 millimeters. So you have to make sure you've got the correct sag for your bike, your style of riding. Where do you find those specs? Good luck. You'll have to do some digging to find it. Okay, so even if the listener takes the 30 to 35%, they can figure that out by measuring the, the total suspension travel. The best way to get your total suspension travel is look it up. That will be one of the specs that the manufacturer will give you. So if they say, um, in the case of my 1200 GSA, it's 220 millimeters rear shock travel. Um, so 60, 65 millimeters of sag is correct on that bike. And that sag is not a fixed number. It's dependent on the load. If I'm solo, it's 65 millimeters. If I'm two up with a load of luggage, it's still 65 millimeters. But of course, the spring preload adjustment is going to be completely different. So really to set this up, you're going to need a, a couple of people to help you likely um, yeah. so that you'll be able to get on the bike. Because what's important here is that you're getting you and all your gear, everything you're going to need on the bike to check the sag. Yep, and your feet off the ground, too. <laughs> so unless you're really good at balancing and reaching around and measuring at the same time, yes, you're going to need some help. You're going to need, definitely need some help with that. So, okay, so to start with, they're going to do what? Start with, you want to measure the bike's sag um, as it sits. So you want to raise the bike, find out the uppermost point, and then get on the bike, load it up, and bounce. get somebody to bounce it up and down. And you can do it with just bouncing it up and down and hope that it'll settle roughly right. Or what you can also do to get it more accurate is to lift it up a little bit when you're sitting on the bike fully loaded and do a measurement and then push it down a little bit and do a measurement. In an ideal world, those two measurements would be identical. The re real world is we've got a little bit of stiction, so there will be probably be a slight difference. So you just take the average. So what you're looking for is the fully raised position to your loaded position, and that should be on my 1200 GSA, that 65 millimeter number. So you're not talking about an actual measurement as far as the overall measurement. It's the difference. That's what's important here. It's the difference. So you could measure from, for instance, the axle to a, put a little piece of tape on the frame somewhere, and then you can check for the difference between loaded to unloaded, and that's what you're trying to get for your sag. Yeah, that's right. So that says the rear, they can adjust the sag by turning up the rear suspension, adjusting the preload on the shock. What about the front? Basically the same thing. You just set it up, do exactly the same test, get exactly the same measurement, and you're still looking again for about 30 to 35%. Uh, an easy way to do it on the front is to put a uh, zip tie around the fork leg and bounce it up and down and the zip tie will end up in the right spot can also use that for measuring how much actual travel you're using when you're on the road. 
Now, on the front forks, what if there is no adjustment fork? Because we talked about some of them, a lot of them don't have this preload adjustment. What can we do? You can change the springs. There's a lot of springs available aftermarket. Uh, progressive suspension, for instance, makes a lot of great suspension or, or replacement springs. Racetech makes replacement springs. Hagen makes replacement springs. And generally, you can contact these guys and say, here's what I'm doing. What do you recommend? And they'll have probably a set of progressive rate springs, uh, which will increase the rate as the sink like sinks, which is a good thing generally. Uh, and there'll be a stiffer, heavier-duty spring. So it's not quite as easy as the back, but it's something you're definitely going to have to do, especially if you're in if you're a heavier person or if you're carrying large loads. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, going back to my old R80GS, I hung the rear shock on the wall. I also hung the stock springs on the wall in order to set a progressive suspension, heavier duty progressive springs. Now, when you say progressive, that's not just the the manufacturer name. That's also a term for springs. Yeah, most springs that you'll see are constant rate. In other words, the coils are an equal distance apart. A progressive spring, the coils are closer together, which means it's quite soft at the at one end, and at the other end, they're quite far apart, which means they're quite stiff. So as you compress the front end, the first little bit of ride is quite soft, and it gets stiffer, 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 and then in, in theory, it gets extremely stiff at the end so that it doesn't quite bottom out. And you mentioned the oil can be changed to change the setting or change the, the um, reaction of the forks. So we have yeah. a fair bit of adjustability, even though there are no real adjustments on it. Yeah, you can fine-tune a lot on the front forks. I, mean, I, I started out fine-tuning forks like in the 60s, and there was no adjustment of any kind on any fork. And it was all about getting the right spring, getting the right progression on, this, on the spring rates, changing the fork oils, maybe adding a little spacer to get a little preload. I mean, we literally cut up a piece of pipe and put it on top of the spring, and that would give you a little extra preload. Uh, plastic Delrin washers or anything to increase the preload and adjust it, fine-tune it. If I'm getting a new rear shock, should I also be looking at springs to the front? Yeah, probably. You're going to need a little bit more on the front generally if you're loading the bike up sensibly. Um, also, remember, springs do wear out. They literally die over time. So if you've got a high mileage bike, I'd be willing to bet that your bike's sitting at least an inch lower than factory. If I think that my bike is not handling well, how am I going to tell whether it's the, the front or the rear suspension that's causing the problem? This is a kind of a fun, tricky one. You would think that if the back end doesn't feel good, it's, it's feeling a little weird, that that's the problem. Often, though, it's the front end isn't right. Um, a rule that we've used for a long, long time as kind of a, a bit of a guideline is if the back end feels bad, it's probably the front end. And if the front end feels bad, it's probably the back end that's causing it. And, and that means that really what you want to do is look at both ends, but look more at the other end than what you think. Um, often there, there's a lot of different aspects to whether your suspension is working correctly or not. Uh, corner entry, how it feels mid-corner, how it feels exiting corner, how it feels on the freeway, how it feels on a straight line bumpy road, how it feels on stutter bumps off-road. All of it affects the other end a lot more than you might think. So if you're riding your bike and you notice something change in the suspension, it's either, I guess, going to have to be age or, or a mechanical breakdown of your suspension, or you've drastically changed your load and, and riding style. Yeah, if you go from solo and the bike feels pretty good and put a passenger and a big load of luggage on it, 
the bike's going to feel terrible. It's going to go into corners very slowly. The steering is going to be heavy. It'll probably run wide. Um, it'll just generally feel very bad. It's <laughs> probably the best phrase. It just feels terrible. And a lot of what you really notice is the front end feels vague and you, you don't have good control. And you think it's the front end, but it's the back end being way overloaded that's affecting the front end. Is it required that a lot of money be spent on this? Is there a way to do it on a smaller budget and still come out with something that's adequate? There's lots of good, inexpensive shocks out there. Um, progressive suspension, for instance, in the U.S. and Hagen in the U.K. both make excellent, reasonably priced shocks that will do the job for most people for most conditions. If, on the other hand, you're going to be two large-ish people really heavily loaded for a big trip, and to be honest, you're probably silly overloaded, it's kind of normal, um, then you should really go for a premium shock. It's going to be cheaper in the long run because it's more easily rebuildable, it's going to handle the load better, um, it's going to give you more range of adjustment. But you can get away with reasonably inexpensive shocks. I mean, something in the four to $500 range is certainly very reasonable to do a good job for most conditions. It just may not have quite the same range of adjustment and it may not last quite as long, but it will still be rebuildable, so it's perfectly fine. And what are the minimum types of adjustments do you think that any shock should have? Oh, preload and rebound damping, that's minimum. Okay, so you can get by without the compression dampening? Yeah, it's, it should have some. If you have some, it's good. It certainly makes the bike track better. Um, if you've got a 1200 GS, let's face it, you put a lot of money into the bike, buy a premium shock with full range of damping. If you've got a KLR 650, you're going for a budget bike. Okay, so you don't have uh, compression damping, but it's good enough considering what you're riding and remembering that the bigger, heavier, faster bike with a lot more load and two up needs better control. Whereas the lighter weight bike, not going nearly as fast, can get away with less control. And would you say that any bike would benefit from an aftermarket shock, a better quality aftermarket shock? Like, yeah. would a KLR become a KTM? Um, Funny you mention that. There was a test by a magazine not that long ago. I'm trying to remember who it was. But they put premium aftermarket shocks on a KLR and ran it around a course against a KTM. Huh. And guess what? It was absolutely stunning how good the KLR was compared to the KTM. It never did, it never did quite make it to as fast as the KTM, but it was really stunning how good it was. They were quite surprised. I noticed when I was in the, the dealer there some time ago, I was checking between two different bikes, both of them quite nice with good suspensions, one a much higher-end suspension. The difference was the higher-end suspension was much more supple. You just had to lean lightly on the bike. It would go down and up very smooth. Mm -hmm. The other one was sticky almost. You had to push on it, and then it sort of jolted downward and jolted back upward, and you can't help but think that's going to affect the overall ride. Huge, huge. Um, one of the things you may have noticed is the Olin's forks on a Ducati, for instance, are gold. The gold isn't just because it's pretty, but gold nitriding means that the um, shock is smoother and has less friction, which means less stiction, which means it moves smoother and responds to bumps and is more um, compliant. What you're after is that 
luxury Cadillac Rolls-Royce ride and yet have full control and the bike is the, t- the tires are sticking to the road perfectly and you're not getting bounced and jounced all over the place. You want that plush ride and you get that with premium seals, premium shafts with really good quality, um, smooth, low friction seals and bushings and bearings and all the rest of it. And, and you don't get that on cheap stuff. You, th- those are the areas where they cut corners. Grant, summer's here for us in the, in the northern hemisphere anyway. What do you have coming up? Coming up is the Hum in Morocco. This is an event that we've run for a number of years in the Pyrenees in Spain. It's a riding event, three days of, I think, geocaching, but no GPS out there riding around in some amazing areas. Uh, this is a fun event for the average rider. No deep sand, great run. Uh, we've been getting rave reviews from it in the Pyrenees, but with this new location in Morocco, we're really looking to ramp it up. And that's on May 13 to 16. We'll hope to see you there. Now, I assume the Ontario Horizons Unlimited Travelers Meeting is still going on, but I understand it's in a different place. Yeah, we're doing the Horizons Unlimited Travelers Meeting in Ontario. It's a new date and a new location. We're in Orillia, June 18 to 21. And if anybody's been there in the last few years, we've been freezing cold. This is going to be nice and warm in a nice new location with air conditioning and heat. Oh, well, that will certainly be a welcome addition, uh, having attended last year and, and just about froze to death in the process. That'll be great. Well, as you know, I've been speaking with Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, and you can check out more of Horizons Unlimited, and you should check out Horizons Unlimited at their website, horizonsunlimited.com, and you can see all the events that are going on throughout the summer. You're looking for things to attend and places to ride. Um, this is a, a great way to do it. Check out their event schedule and then plan that as part of your ride. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Ted Porter from the Beamer Shop. And Ted is an absolute expert on motorcycle suspension, in particular, adventure motorcycle suspension. So there's a lot to hear coming up. My name is Ted Porter. I own the company called Beamer Shop. We're located in California, and uh, we import, distribute, and also sell retail various lines of suspension products. And we also do installations, and we also rebuild shocks. And Ted, as you know, we're talking about suspensions, and of course that's the reason that you and I are talking today. We're talking about adventure motorcycles and adventure motorcycle suspension, and it's a big thing for ADV riders. So we're trying to sort out some of those things that we don't understand and really get a handle on things. And one of the first questions that comes up that we're really trying to delve into and get as much detail as we can is, why would anyone replace that stock suspension? Well, there's a variety of reasons. First of all, even people who might be satisfied with the stock suspension, um, in in time, that stock shock is going to wear, and they are not very serviceable. Uh, In fact, when they're manufactured, it's pretty much expected that that it is a replaceable item, not a rebuildable item. And so once you get 25, 30, 35,000 miles on the stock shock, they get pretty tired. Um, but I, we have many customers that replace their shocks from day one because they understand that the stock shock is, A, not always going to give you the best performance, and B, may not be set up correctly for your loads. And that's a big one. You know, if you look at the aftermarket shocks that we sell, 
there'll be five or six spring choices for that shock, whereas the stock shock, of course, only has one spring choice. And you may or may not fit that spring, uh, spring rate that's on that stock shock. So that's a, that's a big one. Uh, quite often, <clears throat> the shocks are not set up correctly for the loads that, the, that the, the people are riding with. A lot of people will say, okay, well, I've got an adjuster on my shock. I can set it for, you know, whether I have no load or a full load, what more do I need? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Uh, the reality is that the spring preload, of course, is there to add spring tension to restore your sag, to lift the bike back up, uh, to correct ride height after you load after you add loads to it but it doesn't change the rate of the spring for example if we take an R1200 GS uh, that shock is delivered with a 140 newton meter spring and that's good if you're let's say a 200 pound guy or less with that additional preload that's available in your adjuster you might get another 70 80 pounds maybe if we stretch it maybe 100 pounds on the bike and still restore your sag but there is a point at which the, the sag starts to go down uh, to uh, incorrect levels, even with the preloader up all the way, because the spring rate is simply too soft. You know, if you're a 240, 250-pound guy, you might need a 160 or a 170 newton meter spring. Uh, so just adding preload to that 140 newton meter spring is not going to get you where you need to be. I've sort of come up with this idea of the that it's sort of a, a cookie cutter thing when they're making the motorcycles. They they make them so they're cookie cutter, of course, and that's manufacturing. And how they figure out what to set it at or what devices to build into the motorcycle is they use an average and maybe right. some testers' uh, experience as well. But most of us, almost nobody, really fits an average, do they? I mean, imagine going to to buy a pair of pants and somebody handing us a pair of pants and saying, "Okay, there you go. There's the average size." Well, that's a good point. And in fact, I use the shoe store analogy. Imagine that um, you go to the shoe store and they only sell size 9 men's shoes. So if you're a size 9, then you're fine. <laughs> but if you're a size 10 or 11 or any other, obviously the, the, the shoe's not going to fit you correctly. And it's the same way with the shock spring, the, the, the rate of the shock, the way the shock's set up uh, for an average. And the average that they have chosen for quite some time has been, at least many of the manufacturers, um, is 85 kilogram, which is 187 pounds. So for people who are in that weight range, the stock shock, at least as far as SAG is concerned, will work pretty well. But um, that's a pretty small percentage, I have found, of the adventure bike riders who tend to be a little bit larger than that, generally speaking. And I guess also the fact is that a lot of people, maybe the vast majority of people who buy an adventure motorcycle are really buying it for maybe 90% street and they don't do a lot with it. And then there's the, the other people out there who will take it and really work the bike. And to yeah. make a suspension to cover all that would be impossible, wouldn't it? Well, it, it's, it's possible, but it gets expensive. And that's the other side of the coin here. These shocks are, of course, mass-produced, and the idea is to have a shock that will ideally not leak and not break um, and keep the tire on the ground, but it is a price point issue with the manufacturers. So you're just not going to get a top-performing shock right out of the gate as, a, as, a, as standard equipment on these bikes. I mean, there are some exceptions to the rule here and there. Uh, there are some... KTMs, for example, that are outfitted with very nice WP shocks, but 
the majority of, of the bikes out there, brand new, they, the shock can be improved. And, you know, we, we're talking about um, the issue of really working the shock. And this is, this is another aspect that needs to be looked at is heat management. And it's not something that people think about as a general rule, how, shock, how hot is my shock getting. Um, the standard shock, which does not have any kind of remote tank, remote reservoir, is only about half full of oil because the other space in the shock is where the nitrogen lives. So you can imagine, uh, well, let's use an automotive analogy, draining ha half the coolant out of your car's radiator, it's just not going to shed heat as well uh, as if that radiator is completely full. And that's true also with shock absorbers. When we get into more advanced designs where we have a remote tank Sometimes they're hose-mounted, sometimes they're piggyback uh, attached right to the side of the shock absorber. And that component has a far more advanced compression circuit, and it also holds the nitrogen so that the shock itself can be completely full of oil. Those shocks uh, handle heat much, much better. And the more we work the shock, the hotter the shock gets. We are converting kinetic energy into heat. Um, what's happening is that we're, we're storing the energy in the spring on the compression stroke. Then on the rebound stroke, we're converting that energy into heat. So the more you work it and the higher your loads and the heavier your spring, and I, I can go into leverage ratios, <laughs> all kinds of other things, but uh, the more you work that shock, the hotter it gets. And for those off-road environments, it really is best to upgrade to a more advanced shock like a piggyback or remote reservoir. And I guess with most adventure bikes, what we end up doing is we buy the bike, we put on a bunch of accessories, usually some bags, throw a bunch of gear in it that we consider to be the essential gear that we need all the time. And that's putting an excessive load on that shock that was really meant for mainly cruising the boulevard. That's true. Uh, and of course, we have the, the handling issues that we haven't even touched upon. You know, when we sink the back of the bike down, uh, this tends to lift the front of the bike and it extends, uh, there's one aspect of steering geometry called trail. And when your trail is extended up front, because the rear is down and the front is up, the bike doesn't want to handle as well. It, it tends to want to go in a straight line. So there are a variety of reasons why we want to maintain that sag in the back. You know, it's not, it's not just um, so that you don't hit the bumper, um, uh, which of, of course is part of the equation, but it's also how it can, how it can mess up the handling. If for those who don't understand what trail is, or, or it's almost like mm -hmm. caster, I guess, but could mm -hmm. you explain that in a little bit detail? Sure. If you can imagine an imer imaginary line, uh, that if, if you draw a line down through the steering head, and you, you extended that line all the way to the ground, and this would extend forward of the axle, and then you, ex ex then you draw a line from the center of your axle straight down, the distance between those two points is your trail. And the longer the trail is, the more it wants to go in a straight line. So this gives you stability, but the less it wants to turn. And, of course, the inverse is true. So the manufacturers build a certain amount of trail into the bike so that it handles, but it is also stable. And now, of course, you can get into your own tuning of that trail, and people will sometimes do this. You'll see guys at the track that want to lift the back of the bike up a little, shorten the trail to make it go through the turns a little faster, or they may increase 
compression damping in the rear so it doesn't squat when they're hard on the gas because if it squats in the back that extends the trail and I could go on and on about that but um, but keeping the trail where it's supposed to be and certainly not making it longer if you're looking for a bike that you, you want you want your bike to handle well on the turns um, that's where uh, people get into a little bit of trouble and they load the bikes up and uh, the back end is down the front end is up and they're wondering why it doesn't handle well on the turns so this is the reason why when we're buying the aftermarket suspension, you want to know what weight we're carrying, what we're doing to the bike. Exactly. The, the idea is to cover your minimum to maximum loads as best we can in the, in the spring rate and in the amount of preload lift that's available. And this is another thing that people don't tend to know. If you were to ask somebody, how much preload lift do you have in your shock? Most people wouldn't know the answer to that. And it varies greatly from one shock manufacturer to another. Some of the older designs only had six or seven millimeters of lift uh, in that preloader. In other words, how much the piston comes out of the preloader and pushes down on the spring, adding tension to the spring. Um, later designs, 10 millimeters became the standard uh, for the aftermarket. And there's one product that we sell that actually has 15 millimeters. So for the people who have a really wide delta between their minimum and maximum loads, it's nice to know that you're not going to run out of preload trying to restore your sag. So there's a lot that goes into it. And, um, you know, buying a shock off the shelf or even buying a motorcycle that has a used shock on it, um, and, it and you look at it and you see that it's a good brand and you, you're wondering why it's not working well, that shock may have been set up for someone who's carries very different loads or, or weighs a lot uh, more or less. So um, getting the shock set up, you know, there's so many good shock brands on the market now. It's, it's really exploded. And if you buy good stuff, it's hard to get a bad shock. But the devil's in the details. You know, it's, it, there are a variety of things that are important to look at when you buy an aftermarket shock. And one of those things is, does this shock cover my minimum to maximum loads? Does it have, are there enough springs available? Um, does it, how much lift does it have in the hydraulic preload adjuster? Um, and there are other things, you know, length of warranty, uh, rebuild intervals. You know, many shocks have to be rebuilt more often than others and, and so forth. But, um, but preload lift is something that is easy to measure. I mean, you simply crank the knob and measure how much that piston comes out of the of the cylinder and this is at the top of the spring on the rear shock would you not be able to measure that off the bike or maybe even looking at the you threads can. on the shock you you can measure that off the bike now if it's a manual preload adjuster in other words you adjust the spring with a spanner wrench that's a different story because um, you tend to have a lot of preload available because you're, you, you have this threaded cylinder and this nut that compresses the spring, and there tends to be a lot of threads there. But the hydraulic preloaders, which are very common today, are only going to put the additional tension on the spring um, uh, in the amount that's, that's available in the stroke of that cylinder. How far will that piston come out? Some come out six millimeters, the, some of the OEMs are about eight and a half. Many of the aftermarkets are 10. The uh, TFX stuff and the tractive stuff is now 15. So um, it's one of the lesser known facts. <laughs> Let's put it that way.
So when someone comes to you with a bike and they, they've bought this adventure bike, they want to do trips on it, they're going to load it up with gear, they're coming to you and, and you're recommending what? Do they replace all the suspension? How do you do that? Well, the, when there are big loads um, involved, we, it's always about the rear shock first, especially if people are on a budget. You can do the rear shock now. If it's a BMW motorcycle that has a front shock, you can do that shock later. If it's a telescopic fork uh, bike, certainly you can improve uh, the cartridges and so forth. But, or, or if it's not a cartridge fork, you can certainly do emulators, you can do fork springs and so on. But the loads really affect the rear shock. And just improving the rear shock is huge. And that's, that's always the place to start. And then, of course, we look at the loads. How is this bike used? Is it used on-road mostly, or does it see a, a lot of off-road? And if, if it, even if it's just dirt roads and gravel roads, it really is striking how much more the suspension works on a dirt road, even if it's an improved dirt road, as compared to the street. So uh, we look at those things and make sure we're choosing the right shock, uh, a shock that'll have the correct amount of preload lift, good spring rates available, and plenty of lift in the preloader, and that it's not going to overheat in its intended use. And would you recommend a remote reservoir on any application? Well, let's put it this way. If, if they were the same price, everybody would do remote reservoir shocks, because they are superior, even on the street. But for many people, it's a matter of, of need first. What do I need? How will I? How will will, will this shock fit my applications? Um, <clears throat> not everyone has a, a price is no object um, approach. <laughs> <laughs> so um, sometimes we have to first look at need, and uh, you know, in that respect, I have had people call and say, "Hey, look, I'm going to Death Valley, and then I'm going to Baja, and I'm I'm doing this discovery route, and I'm doing the Continental Divide, and I want an inexpensive shock," and those are just mutually exclusive. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I know you want to keep some money in your pocket, but uh, you have to have the right tool for the job. So some, in, in some cases, it's a need. This, this customer needs this level of shock. And in other cases, it's not a need. Um, the standard, a standard internal dividing piston or, or um, emulsion design will work fine. It's mostly street use. And that's okay. It might be a want. Maybe I want a three-way, a more advanced shock, but it's not necessarily a need. And that's the first thing that, that we try and determine is uh, what are the needs based on, on the conditions. So almost every bike is going to need something. The chances of you getting the bike and, and putting your accessories on, loading it up, and it being ideal is probably slim. How does someone know if they need to change something? Well, sometimes it's obvious. Uh, I have a little F650GS in the shop right now uh, with um, a pogo stick. <laughs> so we've got a shock coming for that uh, for in the, in the rear of the bike. It's absolutely a pogo stick. Um, so there are times when it's obvious. And there are, t there are other times where it creeps up on you. Um, you know, going b back to what I said earlier, the, shock, the stock shock's not great to begin with. You can almost always improve it right out of the gate. But if you choose to wait, it creeps up on you. The shock slowly degrades to the point where 25, 30,000 miles down the road, 
you might start to notice this bike just doesn't handle as well in the turns as it once did. It gets more upset by the bumps than it once did. I don't remember the bumps being this harsh, you know, that type of thing. Um, and that's usually when uh, we get the calls, you know. And, and then, of course, you put the new shocks on and you have a holy cow moment. I, you know, I, I get a lot of those comments. I had no idea if I had known I would have done this earlier. And you'll see that on the forums, too, when people are talking about their suspension upgrades. They couldn't believe uh, what a difference it made. So if, if it's not an outright failure because the shock is leaking, you know, it shouldn't be wet, it shouldn't be dripping, it shouldn't be uh, uh, acting as a pogo stick, um, you can also, uh, in fact, I just did this with a customer in the parking lot recently where we, uh, he was talking about the ride quality of the bike. And I gave the, the seat a good shove with my forearm, and the rebound action was very slow. In other words, it was like watching an elevator go up. Instead of the, the bike rebounding and stopping at correct sag, uh, it, it moved very, very slowly. So this was a stock shock. Um, so we got a screwdriver, and we backed the rebound damping adjuster out all the way, and it had the same action. So there's something wrong inside that shock absorber. It hasn't failed, but it's giving very poor rebound response. So there are a variety of ways. Um, you know, you, you, you can improve the, the shock right out of the gate. You can wait till it gets a little tired, typically in the 25 to 35K range. Um, or you can, you can actually look at how the shock uh, works. Um, and of course, most importantly, Get on the bike and measure your sag, because if you're not a 200-pounder, plus or minus, chances are your sag is all wrong, especially if you load the bike up. And when we're talking about doing a sag adjustment or, or a sag setting, how do we do that? Well, um, there are a couple of numbers that we look at, and the way we get these numbers is we put the bike on the center stand, and we measure if it has a center stand. If not, we offload the bike by jacking it up so that there's no load on the rear tire, and we pick a point on the, the rear axle, you, you either hook into the rear axle or if it's a, final, if it's a uh, drive shaft bike, you find a spot in the center of the final drive and you measure up to a fixed point uh, above the final drive. And I actually use a little piece of blue tape and I draw a line on it so I, I get good repeatable measurements. On the frame of the bike. That's right. And so I'll hook, uh, so measurement A is offloading the, the final drive, offloading the rear, rear tire, I should say, and measuring from the center line of the rear wheel up to the frame and writing that number down. And then, now what we're mostly interested in is rider sag. We want to we make sure that the, when the bike is loaded, that the sag is roughly 30% of the travel. So you need to know what the travel of your bike is. So the, the second measurement is taking it off the center stand and having the loads on the bike. Um, it's been called race sag in the past. In other words, you're ready to race. Everything is, is good to go. You're on the bike and you're ready to go. Um, it's commonly referred to as rider sag now. So you sit on the bike, you've got your riding gear on, you've got your loads on that you normally ride with, and someone, you get all your weight into the seat. It's even better if somebody holds the bike so you can get on the bike as you're ready to ride with your feet on the feet pe foot pegs. And somebody measures those exact two points again. The difference between them, we'll call that measurement B, and the difference between them is your rider sag. And let's say it's a, a, an R1200 GS BMW, which has 200 millimeters 
of travel in the rear. We're looking for roughly 30 to 33 percent. So we'll just call that 60 millimeters, which is 30 percent. So to get that 60 millimeters, we're now going to run the preload adjuster in or out until the difference between the two is 60 millimeters. Then what can be very helpful at that point is get off the motorcycle and just measure the static sag, which is the sag uh, of the bike just sitting on its tires. Because if that number is in the 10% range, let's say, give or take, and different people will have different numbers for this, but I tend to pick that 10% range of your travel, which would be 20 millimeters, then your spring rate's pretty correct. But if you find that static sag number really small, then that means you had to dial a ton of preload into this thing to get your rider sag correct. And as a result, when you stepped off the bike, there's so much preload in it that it pushes the bike way up in the air and your, your static sag numbers are really small. So that tells us that spring is too soft for you. And of course, the reverse is true. So it, it helps guide us a little bit. It, it gives us a, a, a starting point for spring rates. So the static sag is the the, um, the measurement of the just the weight of the bike on the suspension, whereas the first measurement you were doing when you had up on the center stand is when the suspension is just hanging. That's right. And, of course, there are some static sag numbers. You can do it the other way around, and you'll find a lot of people will do it the other way around. Just I don't want to make it too confusing. <clears throat> but they'll go ahead and get the static sag into range, and then the spring is changed until the rider sag is correct. So you can do it the other way. But, you know, a manufacturer might choose to do it that way, or a shop might choose to do it that way. But for the bike owner who doesn't have access to all that stuff, and they just want to know, is my rider sag uh, where it should be? Um, uh, and, and then they want to know if the spring rate's correct for them. They can set the rider sag, get off the bike, and see where the static is. See if it's kind of in range. You know, if it's closer to 15%, okay, well, that just means you've got plenty of capacity in that spring. The static sag is a good reference point to tell us if our spring rate is correct. When you set the rider sag and then you get off the bike and you take an, a third measurement, which is the uh, sag of the bike just sitting there on its tires after you've dialed in your preload to get your rider sag correct. And then you look at those static sag numbers. And if they're in the 10% range, give or take, then that spring rate is pretty close for you. So you're saying the 10%, so the static sag is just 10% of what the overall rider sag was? No, no, I'm sorry. 10% of your total travel. I see. Yeah, so if your travel's 200 millimeters, your static sag should be in the 10% range, give or take. If it's a little bit higher, if it's closer to 15% of your travel, then that means that your spring rate's a little on the firm side, which can be good if you carry a lot of loads. If you get off the bike and you measure your static sag and you find that it's very small, it's down to 2 or 3% of your travel, that spring's a little soft. And you had to crank a ton of preload into it uh, to get your uh, rider sag correct. And as a result, when you step off the bike, it goes way up in the air. Now, these are just general rules of thumb. Um, you know, you might have this really wide load range where at times you need to add a lot of preload to get your rider sag correct, but then other times you take all this load off the bike and you back your preloader way off and your sag is just fine uh, and you don't necessarily want a stiffer spring, 
because uh, you don't always have those maximum loads on there. So, you know, there's, there's more to it, and I, I don't want to make it overly complicated, but we cover all these bases, you know, when, when we're talking somebody through this whole process, because we don't want it to be too firm. We want it to ride nicely when you take the loads off, but we also want you to have plenty of capacity when you load the thing up, particularly if you're going off-road, because then, then bottoming becomes an issue. I think it's important for the listener to understand why they even need SAG. Why is it important? Well, uh, there's a reason why we want about 30%, give or take, um, SAG in the shock. First of all, we want that headroom. And the reason for that is that if you're, if you're riding down the road at speed and you encounter a dip, we want the suspension to be able to drop down into that dip without the, the, the shock topping out. If, let's say that uh, you only had 10% sag because you, your shock wasn't set up correctly or you had too much preload in it, um, and you're riding down the road and you encounter this dip, uh, uh, the, instead of the wheel being able to drop down and still, still be in its stroke, uh, in its range, drop down into that dip, it might very well top out, in which case you might lose uh, tire contact with the road. So we, that's why we want this 30% or so headroom in the shock so the suspension can drop down without topping. And then, of course, the 70% of the stroke on the other side, we need there for all the violent stuff out there on the, on the surfaces of the dirt or the road that the shock has to absorb. Um, we don't want it slamming into the bumper every time you, you hit a rut uh, on a dirt road. So it's very important that the shock be in its normal operating range. And it's very easy to measure, and it's, it's really easy to understand once, you know, once it's explained to you and the light bulb comes on. Ted, if somebody calls you up with their situation, can you do all this stuff just on paper? You know, you, they tell you your weight, their weights and what they're doing, and you have the, the measurements there, and you can figure out what spring they're going to need? Yes. Uh, it, you know, most of it is from experience. You know, we've been doing this so long that, um, particularly the adventure touring market, because it's just so huge now. And those are, those are the top selling shocks, and they have been for many years. So we've done a lot of these installations. We've done the setups with the customers of varying weights. Um, you know, we have the spring charts, but um, even, even the spring charts here and there can be uh, you know, maybe a little too aggressive on one bike or not aggressive enough on another bike. So, uh, yeah, it's, we, we, this is what we do. <laughs> so uh, we, we, can, we can pretty much nail all this over the phone. What does a, a rider do about the sag in the front when there's no adjustment for it? Well, that's a tough one because it depends on the type of fork that it is. Um, you know, a, a lot of bikes just have a simple damper rod fork with fork springs and in many cases, those fork springs are too soft or they have too much or not enough preload. So um, we just did an old airhead, an old uh, mid-80s BMW RT. And it really was uh, just a simple matter of changing the fork springs. The fork springs that were in it were way too soft for the bike and the sag was ridiculous. And when we added a little bit of preload, the... Um, well, first of all, we, we, we were given up too much in the spring coil by adding as much preload as we had to add. Uh, so, you know, you get concerned about coil binding if you, if you add too much preload. And then it was clear by the uh, rider sag and static sag that the springs were just too soft. So, very simply, a, a fork spring upgrade 
and setting the fork upright with the correct amount of fork oil, and that satisfied that particular rider. Now, it's not an adventure touring rider. It's just a, an old airhead. But, but uh, a lot of times these damper rod forks simply need a better fork spring, and a lot of times people are, are completely satisfied with that. Beyond that, it's a matter of spending the money and uh, upgrading the cartridges. There are wonderful kits out there on the market um, that resolve this issue. It's just a matter of stepping up and spending the bucks. The cartridges are going to control our compression and rebound rates, um, right. correct? And then the, right. the spring is going to adjust our, our ride height. But there's also progressive springs. Do you always put in progressive springs? No, not necessarily. It really depends on the customer and what they need. You know, there are people that are going to be more happy with a linear spring and then also others that are going to be more happy with a progressive. It just depends on how they're using the bike and what they're looking for. You know, people... Many people want a linear spring because they want to be able to tune the front end to a specific spring rate and be able to use all the stroke. They don't want it ramping up uh, into another rate. Uh, they want to have control over it. There are also, uh, so that's one side of the coin. The, then there's the other side of the coin where people want uh, more of a progressive action in the spring because they want a soft, supple ride over the small bumps and then when they grab a handful of brake, they want to control the nosedive. So, it, again, it's a matter of finding out exactly how the bike is used because there's no cookie-cutter solution. That's what I've learned. It's really about how the bike is used and, and what the customer is looking for um, because those two work very differently. Now, many of the progressive springs on the market have a very narrow range. So, yes, they're progressive, but we're not talking about a rate that doubles. We're talking about a rate that increases slightly. So again, it, it just depends on the bike and the application, but there are, there are certainly uh, times for a linear spring and there are times for a progressive spring. And would that be also model specific where some bikes are known to have excessive dive um, that can be corrected that way? Yeah, that, that's, that sometimes comes into the equation for sure. Um, we, uh, we also have a division of the Beamer shop that works on old uh, classic BMWs, and uh, many of those from the, the 70s have about, I think they're seven and a half inches of, of travel up front with a really soft spring. So you can imagine there's a lot of nosedive when you grab a handful of brakes. Not that the brakes work that great, but, <laughs> but that's another issue. Um, so a lot of times a progressive spring really helps in that application. But again, it just depends on how the bike's being used. Um, it's hard to have a cookie-cutter approach. Uh, it's nice to have both at, at, at our disposal, uh, both linear springs and progressives. Um, we've had people who thought they wanted a linear spring, and uh, we set them up with the, the rate that was correct for them. And in the end, they ended up being happier with the progressive. So there's definitely a place for both. Is that because the progressive spring uh, just saves them bottoming out at those hard bumps? Well, it helps with the bottoming and it helps with the nose dive. And sometimes they want an initial rate to be soft. And, then, and, and, and so that's where the progressive, <clears throat> if it's wound properly uh, it, it, and it's not a really wide range <clears throat> where it's a, more of a narrow range in the, in the wind of the spring um, and it's selected correctly for the weight of the, of the rider, then that narrow narrow uh, progressive spring can be very helpful. When we put on an aftermarket shock on the back, how long can we expect it to last? What, what should our expectations be there? And then, and when it's worn out, what wears out and what do we do about it? It's a very good question. 
uh, it varies greatly from one shock manufacturer to another. And it's a question that sometimes people don't know to ask. You know, uh, people want to know if there's a shock for their bike. They want to know what the price is. They want to know if it's in stock. But one of the questions that they often forget to ask is what are the rebuild intervals and what will it cost me to rebuild it? Because that affects the, the, the ownership, the cost of, excuse me, the cost of ownership greatly. Um, for example, some aluminum brands, um, well, let me back up a minute. We have two types of materials for shock cylinders, aluminum and steel. The steel cylinder shocks, of course, are heavier, and they, are, uh, they, they don't shed heat as well. So for some applications where heat management is an issue, uh, off-road riding and so forth, um, this is where an aluminum cylinder can be beneficial. Uh, however, some aluminum cylinder shocks use a sacrificial piston band because you have to protect the aluminum alloy um, internally, so it's anodized. But you have to be careful to not wear through that anodizing. So on some brands, the sacrificial part is the piston band. And as it wears, it dumps particulate into the oil. The oil gets very dirty. And some of these shocks have as little as 12,000 miles uh, on the rebuild intervals. So this can really add to the cost of the shock. Um, Would that be on an adventure bike, the 12,000 miles, or is that on something yes. more performance? Uh, no, it could absolutely be on, a, on an adventure touring bike. Because uh, if, you, if you take the bike off-road, it can really be quite punishing to the shock. So uh, you, you, with some brands, you can see a rebound, a recommended rebound, excuse me, recommended rebuild intervals being uh, as little as 12,000 miles, whereas some of the other shocks use a Teflon type of piston band that doesn't wear uh, as, as much, and the rebuild intervals are more like 25 or 30,000 miles. So that's a, that's a very good question to ask when you're, when you're buying a shock. Um, and then, of course, the other is the warranty. A lot of people don't ask that question. You know, what is the warranty? What does it cover? And um, where does it have to go? Some manufacturers require the shock that goes back to them. Other manufacturers allow their dealers to rebuild them and, and, and uh, under warranty. Can you, can you buy and, and carry a set of seals with you or a replacement part so you can rebuild it, you know, while you're on a trip? Well, we do have customers ask for replacement seal heads. It's a small item that you can carry with you. And um, it would be difficult for you to do it on your own since the shocks do have a nitrogen charge. But let's say you're a world traveler and you're in another country and you have a shock failure. Um, as long as you have that seal head, uh, 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 pretty much any sh anybody who rebuilds shocks for a living should be able to take care of that repair. It's just a matter of having that seal head on hand, oh, and, uh, and, and we have those in stock, so um, that's not a problem. We have many customers who are world travelers, and we send them a shock, and we send them a replacement seal head, and that's, that pretty much covers you. And are they all rebuildable? The shocks that we sell, yes. Really, pretty much any quality aftermarket shock absorber is designed to be serviced, and that's one of the advantages you know, over a stock shock very difficult to get parts for a stock shock. And most of them are deemed unserviceable by the manufacturer. They're, it's a replacement item. Whereas any of the quality brands are serviceable, the parts are available separately, they're designed to come apart and go back together. Um, 
So that's that's definitely another advantage. The fact that they're rebuildable though doesn't mean that they're they're going to last less time than a than an OEM part though. It's it's probably the opposite, isn't it? Well, uh, the most of the brands that we sell have a recommended rebuild interval of twenty five thousand miles, mm. and really your stock shock is going to start getting tired at twenty five thousand miles. Uh, the the difference, of course, is that the aftermarket shock is lifetime. You know, it it really should outlast the motorcycle. Um, so you, you mean with rebuilds? With rebuilds, yeah, absolutely. Right. So instead yeah. of buying the the stock shock and throwing it away, you're taking it in somewhere and getting it rebuilt because clearly with the nitrogen fill, it, it needs to be done by someone who does shock rebuilds and has the equipment for it. Um, That's right. But otherwise, you're going to end up using the same thing, just replacing the the wearable parts and the oil. Exactly. That that's right. And uh, you know, you you might spend eight hundred dollars. You might spend twelve hundred dollars, depending on on what uh, level of performance you need from your shock. That's what you'd spend on a new shock. But the rebuild costs are one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty, let's say, depending on the shock type. So, um, and, and you only have to do that every twenty five thousand, at least on the the brands that we tend to to stay with. So not a huge chunk of money, just a matter of timing it, I guess, uh, when you're ready. And, I, and I, I'm assuming that if you did it at a 25,000-mile interval, you're probably going to get it ahead of doing any damage. Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the shocks that we tend to uh, steer our customers towards, it's difficult to damage the shock. Um, there are some brands that use these sacrificial piston bands, and yeah, twenty four, twenty five thousand miles would be the maximum I'd, I I would suggest going because there is a risk of damage with some brands that are aluminum that use you know a band that that you might wear through, and that's the issue with some of those. If you wear through the soft material, you expose the the metal underneath, uh, and then that's what damages the anodizing inside. But um, you should be able to, you might be pushing it a little with some brands by going to 25, but, but that would be a maximum. Uh, some of the other stuff that we sell, particularly the steel cylinder sho shocks, that's the advantage to them, is there's nothing in there really that you can damage. So you can go much longer until you actually have a leak or some other problem before rebuilding and the risk of damage is very small. Aside from the price, how do we know we're getting a quality shock that doesn't have this sacrificial band? Well, I, first of all, even the shock that does have the sacrificial band, uh, the, the, the shock I'm thinking of without mentioning names, is a, is a very good shock. It's just that it has uh, more frequent rebuild requirements. Um, it is hard to get a bad shock today if you're buying, you know, the uh, among the, um, I hate the word, I hate using the word elite, but uh, it's the one that comes to mind, the elite brands, the quality brands, and there are a bunch of them now. And they're all good. It's very difficult to get a bad shock. As long as you're buying the right shock uh, for the job and you're buying it from a qualified place so that they'll be there to support you after the sale if something is not set up correctly, it's pretty hard to go wrong. I guess really this, you know, this comes down to this, this consumer thing that we're doing nowadays about always searching on, on a price point. This yeah. is probably the type of thing you want to go to somebody like yourself that you know is into suspensions, not just selling stuff online, you know, or coming out of a foreign country, you know, from China or Taiwan or something like that. Somebody who's working with suspensions, I can go to you and say, Ted, this is what I'm doing. You know, I need a good shock and, and you're going to sell me something that is, that you know is, is quality from years of use. 
Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I, absolutely. It's You always want to talk to somebody who knows something. <laughs> when you're going to plop, plop down that kind of money, there are some benefits to buying from somebody who uh, you know, has a reputation uh, for, for, for knowing what they're doing and uh, has been in the industry a while and, and uh, will give you support after the sale as well. And you're right. Sometimes people are price conscious. They find a deal somewhere and then suddenly that deal doesn't look so good um, after having to spend money to get things straightened out. So uh, there are lots of good suspension um, vendors uh, out in the marketplace today. Of course, we want you to think of Beamer Shop first, but uh, there, are, <laughs> there are lots of good ones out there uh, selling good products. It's just a matter of asking the right questions. Uh, and again, it's making sure that you're buying enough shock for the application so that you don't overheat it if you take it off-road, um, making sure that the, sh the, sh the shock itself is strong enough for the application. Uh, there are some shocks that use smaller shafts, some that use larger shafts, um, that the hydraulic preloader has enough lift in it for your minimum to maximum load range. What are the rebuild intervals? What are the cost costs associated with rebuilding? What is the warranty and what what do you have to do if a warranty matter arises? Uh, those, those I think, are the, are the questions. And if you talk to someone who's knowledgeable about suspension, they should be able to rattle off those answers quickly and easily. And, um, and then you know, that person will make sure that you're getting enough shock for that application. You don't have to overspend, but you have to spend enough. And you got to go in with eyes open about that. Um, it, it, you don't want to buy a shock that you're going to overheat and you end up going to end up going to uh, have to do it again. You're going to because this is this has happened actually one of my customers who ended up using his bike for more off-road riding than he initially thought he would. And uh he went to Baja with a standard emulsion design. He overheated it, he blew a seal. And the reason I know it was overheated is because the oil was so badly burnt when we took it apart. It was really stinky. Sort of like a transmission when you overheat it. Yeah, well, that's a good analogy. So clearly he didn't have enough shock for his application. It was just buying the wrong tool for the job. You do mail order and you also do walk-in there at your shop. How does someone find you? They find us at beamershop.com. We are also the number one Wilbur's importer in the U.S. So we also have a site called wilbursamerica.com. Ted, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Ted Porter from Beamer Shop. You can find out more about Ted and the Beamer Shop at www.beamershop.com. And that link will be in our show notes. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Now, don't forget... That's only the first installment of our suspension episode. We've got another one coming up next week. We've also got an incredible gem. If you remember gem from previous episodes, it's uh, when we try and feature a local area to someone that might be bypassed. If you're riding in the area, you might not know it's there and not be aware of the route. Well, we've got Sam Manicom with a really good one. And he'll be coming up next week along with the rest of our suspension episode. Oh, and we've got a few other surprises coming up. Thanks for listening. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, before you go, I forgot to say, 
Do us a favor, head on over to iTunes and give us a rating. Really do it this time. Like today, you know, grab your computer right now, go over to iTunes, find us on iTunes if you don't get us there normally, and give us a rating. Let them know what you think. Drop by our website, send us a comment, drop by Facebook. We've been getting great feedback on Facebook. Drop by, like our page. We gotta get those likes up there. We're, I don't know, we're up at like 1,300 or something like that. And we wanna get it up to, well, infinity. I mean, we just keep going. But you want to get lots of likes on there. So drop by the Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. We're ADV Rider Radio. And uh, send us a tweet. Follow us on there. It's good fun out there in social media land. No excuses now. Seriously, go ride your bike. Go. Get. Come on, it's over. Go on. Go. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. This is Ted Porter, Beamershop.com. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 